The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. All right, so Revelation 20. And let me just say this. Of course, we'll pick up there. Um, If you remember from last week, we went over uh, some of the main millennial views. Of course, there's only these six verses in the whole Bible that mention uh, this thousand years. Uh, even though it's a very uh, contested or debated or thought about, you know, to, no, I wouldn't claim to have all the answers on, you know, myself, and I don't think perhaps a lot of other people as well, you know, um, but we do the best we can, you know what I'm saying? So I went over a few of these views last week from what we call the millennium or the millennial reign. That's not a scripture word. It's just the word thousand years. But, you know, we just call it millennium or um, millennial reign. Uh, One of the views, of course, again, last week or maybe two weeks ago, I can't remember, uh, is uh, premillennial, which there's there's a lot to that because you could be premillennial, which refers to the second coming. And still believe in a pre-trib rapture, a mid-trib rapture, a post-trib rapture, or a no rapture at all, and still be premillennial. All right. You can be uh, there's post-millennial and all-millennial, which are by far the two most common views today, as well as throughout church history. Uh, there's other views I only mentioned four. Uh, there's also the so-called transmillennial view, which is transitional view, which is the one I currently pretty much hold to, which is that uh, the so-called reign uh, has most to do uh, with the first, Jesus said, you know, in Matthew 24, 34, that uh, truly I tell you, uh, this generation, talking to his contemporaries, uh, and we shared some quotes up here on the board as time has in several weeks gone by. Uh, where many people and most people until 200 years ago uh, throughout church history readily understood uh, all the events of Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, as it's called, uh, happened in when Jesus said it would happen in the first century. So they said, uh, Lord, tell us, when will these things be? What things? The sign of your parousia in the Greek, your presence, your presence coming, and the end of the age. And in verse 34, he directly answered their question. Truly, I tell you, all these things will take place. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so Jesus uses the phrase, this generation, five times in the Gospel of Matthew. And every single time, without exception, without any, there's no way around it. You can't Greek it away. You can't, it's just, it means what it says and says what it means. Uh, This generation. Like when he would say, to whom will I compare this generation? You know, in Matthew 11 and Matthew 12, he's rebuking the perverted apostate religious leaders of his day. And he said that, you know, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for this generation. Because they were the generation who rejected and killed their own God, their own Messiah, right? And so anyway, so in Matthew 24, 34, he tells them, uh, this generation, right here, all these things will take place. And we know from the scriptures and from church history that they did all those things. Now, um, so that's sort of what I hold to. Of course, the, what's up? Go ahead. Hey, 
you mentioned about not here. Uh, we have new people here today, and maybe you can remind people online too if they haven't heard the messages in the past. Go to the glory center. Currently, they would have. To, we're working on that, but currently they would have to go to um, any of the Facebook pages. My own, which is public, so anyone could get all those messages, or the church page, or even my personal ministry, Jordan Art Ministries. Okay. So. Whether my, myself or the church name, the Glory Center, yes, all these messages are publicly available online for everyone. Thank you, Orla, yeah. And, uh, of course, uh, Bill Pontus, Bill and Sarah, they're not here with us today, but um, Bill is um, going through all the, uh, he's taking all of those and uh, cropping them to where it's just the sermons. So we'll um, have those available, and they'll also be, He's also doing just the audio, so we'll have the audio available. So we'll make those available to everyone. We'll have this whole series uh, available for people, which will be very helpful because it has so much information. So that's the view that I hold, and I think that's a thoroughly scriptural uh, view that, uh, and, and there's many reasons for that. And again, as Orla was saying, you have to watch past messages um, to understand why I hold to that view that, uh, because, and we'll look at it here in Revelation 20, um, but, for example, the first time the thousand-year reign is mentioned, only those who were beheaded, it says, reigned with Jesus. And the thousand years is mentioned a couple of times, but the first time it's mentioned, only those who were beheaded for not worshiping the beast or his image uh, and not receiving the mark, only that's the only people mentioned as reigning with him. All right? So, and again, those are the martyrs in the first century for the gospel, all right? Now, um, we went through all of that, and then there's other views, and I'll mention one here in just a moment, but um, let me get here in Revelation. I think you're probably already there. Now, <clears throat> work in Jesus' name. There it is. Let's just read some of this, and then we'll dissect and uh, see, see what we can pull out. Of all this. Revelation 20. We'll just start verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel, which of course is the Greek word messenger. Uh, then I saw a messenger coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Verse 2. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, um, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, again, last week I gave uh, several, on the handout that I had, I gave several scriptures where a thousand years is used scripturally, symbolically, all right? Most notably would be something like Psalm 50, verse 10, where uh, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine, you know, the Lord's. Um, then, I mean, the Lord is uh, faithful. Uh, you go back to the book of Exodus, you know, uh, thousand upon thousand, generation to generation, he's ever faithful. Um, one can put a thousand to flight, right? To ten thousand. Um, many scriptural references there where a thousand is clearly, uh, you go to the book of Judges and you have uh, Samson where he took the jawbone of a donkey and it said that he killed a thousand men. Well, most people agree uh, that that's a symbolic statement. It's, it's like saying, well, who was at the ball game last night? Oh, everybody. Well, everybody probably wasn't there. You know, the whole town was there. Well, I doubt it. You know, but it's a, it's, a, it's a way of expressing something. It's hyperbole. And hyperbole is used all throughout Scripture. 
And so there's many examples. And so this thousand-year reign, most of church history emphatically did not interpret this uh, as a literal thousand years. It's a symbolic, as the entire book of Revelation is a symbolic book. Um, literal spiritual implications and realities, but still symbolism is used to express those things. All right? Um, so we see Satan being bound in some capacity. Verse 3, And he threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him. And I labor this point so emphatically, but it's, it's worth doing. How did he seal him? Verse 3, so that he would no longer deceive the nations. So Satan was not fully incapacitated. He was deceived in such a way that he could no longer deceive the nations. All right? <coughs> Why is that? Well, it's for a lack of knowledge that God's people are destroyed. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's the truth that makes people free. So what bound him? The gospel. The person and the work of Jesus and the good news message or the gospel that he brought forth to humanity is the truth that sets people free. All right? And so we see the gospel coming forth, and that's how Satan is bound. And you know that still works today. Thank God. Amen? The gospel is the truth. It's God's truth. It's God's answer that binds uh, Satan's as Paul called it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, uh, the wiles, or the methods in the Greek, the methodia, the methods, the, the schemes, the uh, plots, plans, and ploys, you know, of the devil. It's the gospel. The gospel's the answer, all right? And so that's what bound Satan <clears throat> so he could no longer deceive the nations. And then continuing here, please notice in verse 3, it says, but after this he's released for a short time, I personally believe that that's, of course, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, which is what Jeremiah called it. But then you have uh, just a couple of verses in the New Testament. The same, it's a synonymous phrase with the time of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Israel, right? It's in the New Testament, you see the phrase, the great tribulation. Now, there's not a single verse anywhere in the Bible at all, anywhere, period, whatsoever, that ever says there's a seven-year great tribulation. Now, if, if you're just joining us today and that's hard to swallow, I'm sorry. Don't, don't stone me while I'm preaching. We'll talk about it later or go watch some past messages. Bear with us. Now, but the Bible does mention repeatedly a three and a half year tribulation or a 42 months. Daniel chapter 12, uh, Revelation chapter 11. There's different places in scripture that mention this three and a half years or this 1290 days or this 42 months. Those phrases are all used. Uh, times, times, and half a time is another way it's referred to in Daniel. So it's a three and a half year time. Well, we know that that's Jesus and Luke 21. I know I'm talking fast. Bear with me. Uh, some of this is kind of review, but it's still where we're going today. Uh, Jesus in Luke chapter 21, in Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, what did he tell his disciples? When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. When did, when did Rome, the Romans, come in and surround Jerusalem in the middle of 66 A.D. And when was the temple destroyed? 70 A.D. That's your three and a half year time frame, all right? Now, I believe that's the three and a half years, that I believe the three and a half years is the short time mentioned in this verse that Satan was released because the gospel was holding him back. You understand? Spiritually. Even if Christians were being martyred, even in you know, Acts chapter 6 when you have Stephen being martyred, that type of thing. Even in death, you understand, the child of God has absolute victory. 
2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, don't turn there, says that Jesus abolished death. So even in death, and he's so defeated that Paul wouldn't even call it death for a believer. He'd call it sleep. You're just stepping out of your body. Well, I like that. Amen? Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 says that through death, he defeated him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus took death into himself, and he died death away, and he resurrected what we call, there's many ways to say it, but he resurrected this resurrection life, or this life everlasting, or this eternal life. And, and Paul even called it in 2 Timothy 1, immortality. We have a life on the inside of us that is, Peter said, incorruptible. Amen? Aren't you glad? Greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. There's a life on the inside of us that's greater than anything external to us that could ever come huff and puff and try to blow our house down. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. So the answer is not trying to get something from God that we don't already possess, but it's learning how to utilize and to tap into that abundant reservoir of eternal life that's already within us. Now, so Satan's released for this short time, I believe that's the three and a half years, where over a million Jews were killed, and the temple was destroyed, and it was a very uh, terrible situation, to put it very, very lightly. Now look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Now notice this, verse 4. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or hand. And they, somebody say they. They, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So in verse 4, that's the only people that's the only group, whatever mentioned, as coming to life and reigning with Jesus in this particular instance. Now that's, I don't know why we've never heard that, but that's very clearly what's stated. All right? Now, but notice this, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now notice verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death. See, notice this. See, I just mentioned this all a moment ago. Jesus so destroyed death. We are not even in the death. We're not in the death system. Death has no dominion over us. You understand? We're not related to death anymore. Hallelujah. I mean, it's... Different bloodline, man. Different species. We're not in the death species anymore. That was old. That was first Adam. He, he birthed that system into the world with the devil's help. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but another Adam came, a last Adam, and he ended first Adam's system of death. And he resurrected what Paul called life and immortality. And another way of calling all of that, summing it up, is simply the new creation. We are part of the new creation, the new heaven and earth. The new system. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Or in the Greek, a new species. And it means, and it's a very strong word in the Greek, creature, creation, species. It means something that's so new, it's literally never existed before. 
All right, we've got a redemption. Our redemption is better than what Adam had to begin with Amen. in that we have redemption. Amen. With Adam, one sin ruined the whole thing, man, because he didn't have an eternal sacrifice laid up to his account. But we do. So for us, if we sin, it doesn't ruin, you, know, you understand, it doesn't, the, the, the cross worked. The Amen. blood of Jesus worked. Uh, if you've read the instruction label on the on the blood of Jesus, it says, no repeat needed. Do not reapply. You know, it worked, baby. It's good stuff. Uh, now, verse 6, over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and will reign with him for a thousand years. So in verse 4, only those who were beheaded reigned in that particular mentioning of this so-called thousand-year reign. But in verse 6, you have this second group mentioned. Um, those who resurrected, uh, or what he calls here the first resurrection, those over whom second death has uh, no power, they will be priests of God and will reign with him a thousand years. Now, so there you have... Uh, this allows us to just very briefly introduce one more view uh, on the millennium that's known as bi-millennialism. B-I, bi-millennialism. Uh, and that's, that's not on your sheet I gave you a week or two ago. Uh, this is a view uh, that two separate thousand-year reigns are mentioned here. Uh, John Wesley, the great, you know, uh, you know who John Wesley is, right? Mm -hmm. John Wesley held to this view. Regardless of how you necessarily interpret it or how that plays out or what, you know what I'm saying? The fact is, and uh, I don't have the quote here in front of me, it's on my handout that I was supposed to give you today, but I left it home, sorry. Uh, it's a very simple quote. But yeah, John Wesley uh, held this in that uh, it must be noted, according to him, that two separate thousand years, whatever, sequences, you know, two separate thousand years are mentioned here. So there's another option. You know, aren't you glad? Aren't you <laughs> that there's just so many options, right? Um, nonetheless. Now, I want to, um, I'll tell you what, let's read um, some of this, and then we'll go to a few other places and show you how these portions of Scripture uh, correlate with some other portions of scripture. Now, it says, when the th thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Now notice this, verse 8, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. What's the word earth there in the Greek? Land, yeah, it's the Greek word gay, and it means land, or specifically the land of Israel. So, that this is not the worldwide earth, this is the land of Israel earth, and that's almost always the, the way it's used in the book of Revelation. It's not the Greek word cosmos. It's gay, which is land. As you go through the Gospels, you'll see the land of Judea, or the land of Caesarea, or the land of whatever. It's, it's a specific region or area, all right? And in this context, it's the land of Israel. Gog and Magog, which is taken from the book of Ezekiel, now, what, if, if you remember, uh, what do God and Magog mean? Anybody? In the, Gog it literally means mountain. Magog literally means 
covering. Now, Gog in the book of Ezekiel is a person, but it, the, the name Gog means mountain. All right? My name Jordan literally means to descend. And you know, like the, uh, the Jordan, you know, the Jordan River would descend into the Dead Sea, you know, to, to flow down, to descend. The name John means grace, or God is grace, or God is gracious, something to that effect, but basically grace. Uh, nonetheless, so God, that name, literally means mountain. I am mountain, hear me roar. I am God, hear me roar. No? I think Brittany gave me a pity laugh, but no, I thought she did. Nothing. Okay. What's that? Unintentional or very small, right? Basically, I made it up, she's trying to say. <laughs> All right. And Ma uh, Magog, of course, means covering. <clears throat> now, he says, to gather them together for the war. Now, notice this, verse 8. The number of them is like the seashore. Now, again, this is a reference to natural Israel. What did God tell Abraham his seed would be like? The sand of the sea. And then in another place, he mentioned the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. The sand of the sea is the physical, natural, earthly seed, which was natural Israel. All right? And then the, the stars, when he said, if you can number or count the stars, that refers to the heavenly seed, which is us, the true children of God, Those the, the stars in the sky, the heavenly seed. Right? Now, um, so in other words, he's describing this great war when Rome comes in and uh, destroys natural Israel in 70 AD. 66 to 70 AD. But verse uh, 9, they came up on the broad plain of the land and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, what do you think the camp of the saints is, which is the beloved city? wonder what that would be. Jerusalem. So they came up and surrounded the camp of the saints. Now, notice that. What did Jesus tell them? His disciples 2,000 years ago would happen in their day when you see what place Jerusalem surrounded by armies so what did the Romans do and how does this verse describe this they came and surrounded the camp of the saints the beloved city Jerusalem all right now we know for the believers Jerusalem was the headquarters of the early church like in Acts chapter 15 you have the great so-called Jerusalem council where they're debating whether or not they're under law and grace or just grace, whether they're under Jesus plus Moses, Jesus plus law, Jesus plus animal sacrifices, or just Jesus and faith in him alone, right? And so uh, we know the camp of the saints here, the beloved city. So that was the camp for the true people of God, the, the new creation, born again people of God. Uh, of course, it was also headquarters for the unbelieving apostate former people of God, right? Natural, unbelieving Israel at that time. But notice this. It says, and fire came down and devoured them. All right, so all that's describing, that is, uh, of course, the book of Revelation, again, over 400 quotations of the Old Testament. It's extremely plagiarized, if you will. Um, this is another reference to the Old Testament scriptures. Of course, this is 1 Kings chapter 18. Remember when Elijah is contending off with the 450, I think it was, false prophets of Baal, and uh, they're setting up all their sacrifice and things, and uh, he mocks them, and they all day they're worshiping and sacrificing, and Baal, and, you know, none of their demon gods ever knew anything. 
And then, you, you guys familiar with this story? Okay. okay. And then Elijah calls on Yahweh and fire comes down and then he tells them, uh, Elijah told some of the people there on his side, tie them all up, take them down to such and such place, kill them. <laughs> that's, you know, that's what they did. But the point is, fire came down and those false prophets were then killed. Well, that's what he's describing here. The fiery judgment of Yahweh came down on that apostate, Messiah-killing, Yahweh-rejecting system, right? And they were killed. They were all slain. So that's just uh, a way he's describing this here. They were devoured. Over a million Jews were killed, devoured in uh, this happening, this three-and-a-half-year great tribulation. Now, verse 10, it gets more interesting. It says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Do any of you happen to remember what the word brimstone is here in the Greek? It's a Greek word, theon. God. So what, you know, the Greek word, the, the like the, the dictionary word, if you will, they didn't have a word and then the variations of it. The dictionary word for God in Greek would be theos. All right? This is theon. It's just a whatever. It's a, a different variation, but it's the same word, theon. So he was thrown into the lake of fire and divinity is really a good way you could translate it. Because it doesn't have to refer to the true and living God. It, it, it was for any God, yeah. the Greek word there. So fire and brimstone, Greek word theon. Now you say, well, what in the world does that mean? Fire and brimstone, fire and God. Well, we know the author of the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 quotes Deuteronomy chapter 4. And he says, for our God is a consuming fire. All right, and then you go to the book of Daniel, and you have a river of fire flows out from his very throne. Jesus associated the Holy Spirit's work with fire, all right? And there's a good and a bad to that. Fire can warm you and provide shelter and comfort and heat, and you can use it for food and you know, life. It's a very necessary, important thing, but it can also hurt you, right? Um, if miss whatever, used. Um, you know, Jesus, again, in Matthew 3, uh, spoke of the Holy Spirit would baptize, uh, be baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire. And really, in the context there in Matthew 3, when the Pharisees, John's rebuking them, and then Jesus shows up, uh, uh, part of the context there is the, the destruction of their system. Because he says, you vipers, who's warned you, John talking to the Pharisees, you vipers, you brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Which was 70 AD, uh, the destruction of their temple and their system and their very lives. Uh, and then you see a mentioning of baptism of the Holy Spirit in fire. Um, Holy Spirit was for the believer. That fire there was the destructive fire coming on that system to burn it up. I know you can apply it in good ways. I understand that. But just, just a little food for thought there, I guess. So notice that. Uh, thrown into the lake of fire and theon, divinity, God's fire. So in other words, as judgment fell upon the old covenant system, Satan too has been thrown into the fire of God's judgment. He is defeated because Satan used the law system. It was, it was the upholders of the law 
who killed their own Messiah. Now, what does 1 Corinthians, let me put this up here because most people, uh, myself included, um, we don't always, as Christians, as much as we like to think we do, we don't always, we don't always, as Andrew Womack says, we don't always let the Bible get in the way of what we believe, right? Um, sadly, and, and we've all been there to various degrees, and that's why God grants us repentance, the ability to change our thinking and to believe and think like him. And it's a process. It's an, probably an eternal process, right? But notice this here. Here's some of these verses we don't hardly believe or know what to do with. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. He says, so when this corruptible will have put on incorruption and this mortal will have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, then he quotes here from the Old Testament, death is swallowed up in victory. And we've talked about that. But notice what he goes on to say. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Notice verse 56. The sting of death is sin. So, and of course, Jesus took away our sin, didn't he? Right. So we don't experience the sting of death. We step out of this body. But again, Paul wouldn't even call it death for the believer. It's, you, you're just shedding your body. You're just exiting this and going to another place. That's all, you know. The sting of death is sin. Now notice this, though. What is the strength of sin? The strength of sin is the law, which that's so thoroughly scriptural, and yet we don't know what to do with this most of the time because it doesn't fit our existing theologies and paradigms and all of that. So Paul said in Romans 7 that uh, when the commandment came, sin revived. So if you want a revival of sin, just put people under law. Pick one. Moses law, charismatic law, Baptist law, Catholic law, self-made up law, Pentecostal law, just pick one, you know, go with your favorite, make your own hybrid if you want, and the more law you come under, hallelujah, the more sin you get, baby. Woo! So if you want to revive, so whenever we say, well, not we, because we don't say this, but if someone ever says America needs to return to God's law, they're saying America needs to return to sin, hallelujah. We want a revival of God's law. Translation, we want a revival of sin. Because the strength of sin is the law, right? Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 said that the ministry written and engraved on stones, that's the big 10, he says, is the ministry of death and condemnation, right? Well, thank God Jesus uh, redeemed us from that whole situation. Now, stick with me. Let's jump back to Revelation here very quickly. If you, maybe you didn't turn from there, I had to on this, but um, again, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and Theon, divinity, God, God's fire, <clears throat> where the beast and the false prophet also are, and will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Now notice this, verse 11. Good stuff. He said, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven, same as almost always the word earth there, Greek word gay, means the land of Israel, earth and heaven fled away. Now, again, this is describing the destruction of the old covenant system, right? Now, the Jews, as you know, referred to their temple as heaven and earth. You understand that? So you see that reference here. 
Um, and it's very interesting to note, by the way, uh, that Solomon's temple, you know, before which was the temple before this one, it was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. Uh, but both of these temples, on the the way they were created, uh, they had stars in different places, and they had places that they called the sea and uh, the heavenly host. It had a trees in it. It had a cosmic pattern in in its uh, in the way they made the temple. It had all these images throughout various parts of it. In other words, you can, as Lillian and someone else said earlier, Google it, right? <laughs> you can find more on Google, so hallelujah. Um, but heaven and earth, that's like when Jesus said in Matthew 5, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle of the law will in any wise pass away. He was talking about the temple, and the Jews understood that. That's what they called their temple. Um, because the temple is where heaven and earth came together. It's where God and man met. You understand that? Okay. So here you see just a description of that. God on his throne of judgment, judging this old covenant system. In other words, heaven and earth fled away. Now notice this. And no place was found for them. Well, guess what? There is still no place found for that old covenant system in God's new heaven and earth, in the new creation. Amen? Amen. God will never go back to a system of slaughtering animals uh, or works of righteousness for right standing with himself. It's always faith in his son and his son's blood. And that's the only thing he will honor. Right? You understand that? Right. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, you see the book of life, by the way, mentioned in Psalms. Again, this isn't something that John just got the first glimpse of. This has been around for a long time. Go back to the Psalms. But another place where you could find this in particular, uh, just make a note of it, is Daniel chapter 12, which is just a handful of verses. But you see the books being opened in Daniel 12, all right? The book of life, now notice this, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Now, hold your spot in Revelation, uh, and then look up here. Let me show you this verse here that is a synopsis of this very thing. <clears throat> Notice this, in Matthew 16 here, it says, For the Son of Man, verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. That's the law system where... You're judged by your works, in other words, not faith in Jesus. Now, now again, verse 28, look at this. Truly I tell you, there are some of those uh, who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now again, this is, you know, Matthew 24, 34, truly I tell you, uh, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. You have a very similar thing right here. It's one of those verses that people refuse to believe because it 
doesn't fit the current paradigm. All right? Let's read it again, and let's not explain it away. Let's let Jesus, if Jesus is Lord, let's do our best to let him mean what he says and whatever. You know what I mean. Say what he means, mean what he says. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will repay every man according to his deeds. Truly, I tell you, some of those standing here will not taste death until this happens, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, which, of course, was when he came, uh, when, the, when the temple was destroyed, that represented the old kingdom gone, the new kingdom come, all right? Now, some people, unfortunately, because they don't know what to do with this verse, they try to say that in the very next chapter, Matthew 17, in the transfiguration, when Jesus does manifest in a glorious appearance way, they say that's when this was fulfilled. The absurd problem with that, amongst other things, is the fact that Jesus, in, if you notice verse 27, in Matthew 17, did Jesus come and reward every man according to his deeds? Absolutely not. There's only three guys up there. Give me a break. It's silly, man. Just anything to refuse to believe what the Bible says because it doesn't fit our current theology. And yet, Jesus could not be more clear here. Some of you standing here will not even taste death until this happens. In other words, until I come in my kingdom. Now back to Revelation. So those two verses alone there, and there's so many others, um, are just a brief description of this one verse here where he, verse 12 in Revelation 20, where he judges every man according to his deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell, uh, it's the record Hades, death and Hades, gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, everyone according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I believe this, I believe this happened on the old covenant system in 70 AD, because there was, in Daniel 12, in Matthew 25, which, by the let me slow down here. In Daniel 12, Daniel is told that at the end of the age, his people, which of course was the Jewish people, there would be a resurrection. And that the, uh, I forget all the words he uses, but basically the wicked would have everlasting contempt or death or uh, destruction. And then the righteous would have, you know, everlasting life. All right? Um, I believe this event happened like it happened, but it's ongoing. And let me try to elaborate that just a little bit here. At the end of the age, the judge came and judged that system. And in doing so, he judged everyone in that system. Well, Matthew 25 calls this the sheep and the goats, or we call it the sheep and the goats judgment which is on the heels of Matthew 24. Well, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, that too, Jesus didn't pull that out of thin air. He's taking that quite literally from the book of Ezekiel, all right? Uh, Ezekiel is the one who first gave uh, that the son of David would come and he would judge between the sheep and between the goats. And, you know, the sheep would, he would be their shepherd and he would comfort them with the peace of the covenant. And then there would be, you know, judgment on the goats, right? Well, Jesus takes that that's the end of the age judgment. 
All right, Matthew 24, 25. We read the two verses there in Matthew 16, 27 and 28. Son of man will come in his, uh, in his glory and repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I tell you, some of you standing here won't taste death until this happens. See, that's this event right here. These are different descriptions. Matthew 25, Matthew 16, 27 and 28. Uh, these are all different descriptions of this event. John's just seeing it from a different angle and seeing it a different way. It's the end of the age judgment. So there was a resurrection of all the Old Testament people who are under that covenant, righteous and unrighteous. So whoever, whoever's, whoever's name was not in, whoever was not faithful to their covenant, you understand that? Whoever's not faithful to their covenant, they're the unrighteous. They're cast into the lake of fire. But then you have those whose names were written in the book of life. The righteous. You understand that? All right? Now, in my first closing, let's uh, jump over to 2 Peter, and I'll just show you a couple of things here. So this judgment happened on that old covenant system. But I believe this is ongoing for every individual. You step out of your body, there's not a whole lot of options. As far as I can tell, there's about two destinations. Fair enough? All right. You know, and, and I know there's many different thoughts and stuff on that, and that's fine. I just, uh, from what I can currently see, that's kind of probably how it basically works. You know, you step out of your body, and there's about two destinations you can arrive at. And um, this, this event happened on the old covenant system and all the people under that system. And now for us in the new creation, it's still ongoing. All right? But our judgment isn't a judgment of works. We're, our, our righteousness is not based on our works. Um, as far as I can tell, there's some type of reward system set up. And I know there's debate on that. Some people say, well, the reward is just Jesus. Hey, that's that's a pretty good reward. Mm -hmm. That's fine with me. But there might be something out. There might, you know, we don't know exactly how all of this works, right? But it looks like in 1 Corinthians 3, among other places, that you step out of your body uh, and you stand before, you know, the Lord. You know, again, I don't know. But uh, in some capacity, whatever works, Paul called them wood, hay, and stubble. You know, bad works, whatever you want to classify that as. Yes, yes, amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. You know, so this bad stuff's burned up. There's that fire again, that judgment fire, not because God's out there just throwing lightning bolts at people. It's just who he is. He is truth, you know? And so, uh, and then the good stuff in some capacity lasts, but regardless, we get Jesus and eternal bliss, and uh, boy, I'm looking forward to that. Not that I plan on exiting anytime particularly soon, but nonetheless, 2 Peter 3. Uh, St. Peter 2. Let me start there. Just show you something real quick here. Just a little, a little interesting thought here, I guess. Second Peter 2, verse 1. Notice this. Very interesting. Um. <coughs> Are you in? Uh, are you in Second Peter two? Stay there, stay there. But look up here. Look up here. But you stay there. 
Look at this. Uh, this is First Peter. I want, I want you to see this first. Because the last, the, the biblical last days, again, are not the last days of human history. It's always the last days of the Old Covenant age. And I just want to show you where Peter, we've looked at so many verses, but here's a, a verse where Peter says he was living in the last days or the last times. All right? He says, knowing, this is First Peter, but verse chapter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold, uh, or from the feudal way of life which you inherited from your forefathers, that's Judaism. He says, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared when? In these last times. So here's Peter saying that when did Jesus appear? In the last times. And so that's just another little nugget for you to tuck away as far as these things go. Now in 2 Peter 2.1, He says, false prophets also um, arose among the people, just as they will be false teachers among you. And we know Jesus said, and Paul said, there would be false prophets and false teachers in the last days. Well, Peter just said, Jesus appeared in the last times. So here's a Peter reminding them, there's false prophets in these last times of the old covenant system, these last days. Then he says, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now notice these next couple of verses here. For their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Next verse, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Now notice this. This word hell is the only time anywhere in scripture where this particular Greek word is used. It's the word, I don't know how you say it, but Tartarus. Yeah, so, Tartar, Tartar, Tartarus, you know, that's how I say it. Uh, Tartarus, and uh, it's, it's a pretty unused, mysterious, what in the world is he really talking about kind of a word for the most part. Um, there's a lot of debate on it, and there's some things we know about it, but the typical word for hell in the, new, in the Greek was Hades, 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 which just meant the abode of the dead, all right? We see Hades mentioned, you know, like Abraham, Hades had different, you know, you have Abraham's bosom, and then you have a great gulf fixed between, and then you have the bad place, which Abraham's bosom, where you're going to see some of this here in just a moment here, but... Um, the unregenerate saints of old, that's where they would go before Jesus came. Yeah, before this last resurrection, we read in Revelation 20, all of these things. But I, but notice this here, that's just maybe a little food for thought there. It says, he committed these demons to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, I only show you this so that we can see that also in Revelation 20, where it says, that Satan was bound, the messenger came down and bound him with a great chain. That's not so foreign to scripture because we can see even here where Peter says that, which, and I know there's speculation, but uh, whoever these particular fallen angels of old were, uh, 
They've been, in some capacity, they've been bound, reserved for judgment. So this isn't so far-fetched that Satan gets bound in some capacity. We also see demons from, you understand? Other demons being mentioned as being bound in certain capacity. There's different thoughts on all of that, just as to what these exactly interpret and mean, but I guess some of these things will get to heaven and have some incredible Bible studies, right? And really learn some things for sure, so... Um, now, I want you to notice a few more things here. Please, I know we're going pretty late here. Just notice a few things here. It says, God did not spare the ancient world. All right, now, but he, pre he preserved Noah. Uh, the name Noah literally means rest. Noah is the first person, by the way, in all of Scripture where the word grace is used. It said Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. Just a little food for thought there. Uh, he was a preacher of righteousness. Then it says, and seven others, and he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, and the number eight means in biblical, you know, new beginnings. And that's exactly, God brought it into that old perverted system, and there was a new beginning, a new birth, if you will. Now, but I want you to notice something. Um, let's look at chapter three, and this is the last place we're going to be at. I, I want you to notice, when God destroyed the earth and the perversion upon the earth and all of that stuff, right? I mean, we know there's a lot there in Genesis and the sun, you know, the uh, the so-called sons of God and the daughters of man. We can get into all these things, but that's for another day. But what I want you to understand is that when God destroyed the earth, the perversion of the earth, etc., at that time, he did not uh, he destroyed the earth, but he did not destroy the earth. Earth still existed. Right? Keep that in mind as we read this. Peter says, this is now, 2 Peter 3, 1, this is now, beloved, the second letter that I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder <laughs> that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy, this is my second closing, holy prophets and commandment of the Lord our Savior, spoken by uh, your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, now what did First Peter chapter 1, verse 20 say? Peter said Jesus appeared in these last times. So that's the last days of the old covenant system, not the last days of human history. Now, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following their own ungodly lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his parousia, his judgment coming? In other words, pre these Jewish apostles are preaching, and preachers are preaching to their Jewish unbelieving brethren. Judgment is coming. Believe in the Messiah and live. All right, so they were, they were continually warning them. Now, they're mocking this, uh, saying, no, you guys are deceived. He wasn't the Messiah. Destruction's not coming. God had our temple rebuilt. It'll stand forever, all this kind of stuff. Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. So the world as it was 
was destroyed, but it's not like God took planet Earth and went, you know, let's make a new one. He kept the one he had. He just got rid of the perversion that was on it. All right? Sorry? Cleanse. Cleanse. Absolutely. Now, it says, but by his word, the present heavens and earth. Now, Peter is an apostle to the circumcision, to the Jewish people. We understand that. Paul primarily to the Gentiles. So I believe he's getting back into covenant language, to temple language, to Jewish Hebraic language here. All right? Because again, the temple was the heaven and earth to the Jewish people. They called their temple heaven and earth. Now, by this word, the present heaven and earth are being reserved for fire. Now again, we see this fire. We saw it in Revelation, this fire in Theon, this fire of, of God, this judgment coming on this old system. The present heaven and earth, which was the temple, was destroyed at that time. Was destroyed by what? These ungodly men, and it was quite literally burned. All right? The temple was set ablaze. Kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this fact escape your notice, beloved. And then Peter uses this statement, but he's quoting from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So he's saying, because the mockers are saying, this is, God, this is Yahweh's temple. He's not going to destroy his own temple. It's going to, it might probably stand forever. They're saying, you, you fanatics that are believing in this Yeshua, claiming that he's the Messiah, how could he even be the Messiah when he got killed? I mean, give me a break. We still have animals. We still have the temple system. You're saying this thing's going to come to an end? He's not coming in judgment. He's dead. We killed him. In other words, that's kind of the mocking that's going on here. Uh, but he's telling them, listen, the Lord is being patient. There's this generation, this 40-year motif, right? He's saying it's coming to an end. Now, he says, but the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing for uh, any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But, 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, and I'm not turning there, but in Matthew 24, Jesus used this same language. He said that it would be in that day just like it was in the days of Noah. They would think everything was business as usual, and then, boom, it's too late before you can do anything about it, if you didn't believe the message. But remember, in Noah's day, it was the ungodly and the unrighteous who were taken away. And forgive my cheesiness, it was the godly who were left behind. All right? Now, so the ungodly were taken away, the righteous were remain left behind. Scriptures are replete over and over and over and over and over again. The meek shall inherit the earth. Alright? God's not trying to get us out of here. He's wanting us to populate and take over this bad boy as much as is possible. 
The earth is the Lord's. Amen. It's not the devil's. It's not the Antichrist's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Yeah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Now, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's a bad thing, in other words. Usually thieves are not associated with good things. And nobody ever said, praise God, a thief broke in my house last night. Hallelujah. I just wanted to share that, Jordan. No, it's a bad deal. All right? Now notice this. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Now I want you to notice something. The elements will be destroyed. That's a Greek word, which is, it's best I understand, it's, you would say it is stoikion, stoik, stoikion, elements. It's used six times in the New Testament, and every single time, it always refers to the Jewish law, all right? It's in Colossians 2, where he talks about, um, uh, uh, what's he saying around verse 15, 16, 17, something there? Don't let anyone judge you in regard to new moons, Sabbath, feast days, food, drink. All of those things he said which are uh, destined to perish, but Christ is the substance. Then in Galatians chapter 4, right around verse 4, I think, he talks about don't, uh, you know, whenever you're a servant, you're under the tutor, which he's talking about the law. But when you become a son, you're not under the tutor of the law system anymore. He said, so don't be bound or in bondage and subject to the elements of the world, as if you're still in the world. Uh, it's used in the book of Hebrews. It always clearly refers to the law of Moses, the law system. So he's saying here that these elements of the law, this temple system, will be destroyed with intense heat, and it will be burned up, it and all of its works. Then in verse 12, he says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed, says again, burning, the elements will melt, there's elements, stoichion, this is one of the two times it's used uh, in the New Testament with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for, quoting Isaiah 65, uh, a new heaven and earth wherein dwells righteousness. So much more to cover. And... That's it for today, though. You're welcome. Now, a new heaven and earth wherein dwells righteousness. The, you understand the body of Christ, we are the new creation. You understand that? And as individuals, but it's also a corporate body. Uh, there's both dynamics there, which Peter talks in another place that you are the living stones. See, the old system was an old and dead system. But Hebrews says Jesus brought a new and living way. See, we're the living stones that build up the true temple of God. The new heaven and earth wherein dwells right standing with God through the blood of Jesus. Righteousness. You understand that? We're the righteousness of God in Christ. All right? And then Paul would tell the Corinthians and other groups very often, what? Know you not? Or don't you know? Your bodies. You are the temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. All right? So there's not a building. We're not waiting on a building or anything like that. I don't care what they build in Jerusalem. I don't care if they find 50 red heifers. It doesn't mean a thing in the world to God. It's not a sign of Jack Diddley do. It's just prophetic as Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall on the moon and ate some cheese and fell backwards and broke his neck and had a drink with Mickey Mouse. It, it means nothing. It just means literally nothing. They can build three temples tomorrow and find 50 red heifers. And it doesn't mean Jack to God. God does not honor that system. That system is gone forever. It's smoke rises up before God day and night forever and ever. 
Revelation says. In other words, it's dead and gone forever. All right? So if somebody, you can't breathe in Israel's direction without some charismatic getting freaked out, you know, thinking it's a sign of the times. Well, it's not. Not a sign of anything. I'm also for supporting the Jewish people, and um, but they don't have any more favor or privilege with God than the next person. Because in Christ Jesus, there's neither fail, fail, male nor female. There you go. Uh, Jew nor Greek. Uh, slave nor free. But there's only the new creation. All right? So God's not honoring uh, anything like this. So, and I know that's another sermon for another day and a hard pill to swallow when you've been told that if you don't support Israel and wave 50 Israeli flags, God will kill you. I know all that, but um, it's just not biblical. That's all. If you care about such things like that. So I'm finished, and it's only 12.53. Uh, any closing thoughts, questions, comments? You closed early. Yeah. For one thing. The church I grew up with, Gog and Magog, was China and Russia. Oh. They uh, come down and, and surround Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And yet I heard a message by Chris Ballatin this morning is, don't demonize my people in China. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's what you're doing is demonizing people uh, to surround Jerusalem. And there's a lot of Christians in China and Russia. Yeah. Uh, don't demonize them. Right? Yeah, exactly. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 there, from henceforth, or from since the time of the cross, from here on out, we judge no one according to the flesh. So we don't look at people as, yeah, like that's great. You know, because whether it's Iran or whether it's whoever, I want the people of Iran, the Persians, I want them to get saved and know Jesus also. Amen. You know? Um, and of course, I'm all for supporting that. Israel needs all the help they can get. But it's one well-known preacher uh, has been noted as saying, and this is basically a quote. I might get a word or two misplaced, but uh, this is the statement that the day that America turns its back on Israel is the day that God turns his back on America. But that's wrong on so many levels because God's not judging us by how we treat natural Israel. God relates to people by, what are you doing with my son? He's the issue. You're not saved by supporting natural Israel. Natural, modern, secular, largely unbelieving Israel. No one has more special, there's only, the only person with special favor with God is Jesus. And if you're in him, you've got the same favor that he has, right? The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.